Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter for each episode. You can find out more about the series, our friends and supporters at georgefairbrother.com and follow us on Facebook at Deck 4 Publishing. Hope you enjoy the program. Absolutely delighted because Gary Wells is back with us on the podcast. Gary, great to see you and uh, thank you so much for coming back. My pleasure, George. It's great to be here. Now, Gary, um, before we get to the business of the day, which is talking about our upcoming series on Elvis Aloha from Hawaii, um, there's a couple of uh, just outstanding points I just wanted to uh, go through with you from our previous episodes on Elvis, That's the Way It Is. And um, once again, thanks to everybody, all our listeners around the world who've shared the link on social media and uh, Pinterest and send us some very nice vibes. We've had some uh, great response, so we very much appreciate that support. But Gary, one of the things we talked about uh, on Elvis, that's the way it is, was the fact that Colonel Parker was unhappy with certain aspects of the rough cut. And um, he actually articulated those objections in a lengthy memo, um, interestingly, not to uh, Herbert Solo, the producer, but to James Aubrey, the corporate head of MGM. What I'd like your opinion on, Gary, if I may, is... The fact that, uh, and I'm referring to Peter Gorolnik's um, Careless Love, um, the biography that we both think very highly of. And uh, Peter Gorolnik goes through some of Colonel's objections that he wrote in this memo, uh, some of which we covered in our last episode. But this is Peter Gorolnik's take on it. He says, Most of all, without ever actually naming it, what the Colonel really seems to be objecting to is the director's implicit contempt for his subject. So do you think that's, I mean, I know we talked about Dennis Sanders' motivation, some of his editorial choices. Do you think Peter Gorelnik's observation about this contempt is fair? Well, I, I didn't see that at all. I, I hate to go against Peter Gorelnik. I'm willing to admit that he knows a little bit more than I do about the, the situation. I was trying to, after you mentioned this to me, trying to uh, look at things again to see if I could see what was going on there, and um, I just couldn't. The only thing I can think of is that with all of the Elvis things that have happened, particularly since his death, all of the takes on Elvis and all of the, you know, the cultural opinions about him... Perhaps he went back almost in a revisionist sort of way and, and looked again at the things depicted in the movie and thought, well, maybe that could be uh, depicted better or shown better or I can, I can get this from that scene or I can put this spin on it. But, but it's funny, you know, that's the way it is as you and I spent a lot of time nailing down. is just It's just a wonderfully magnificent document of this certain time in Elvis's life. And to hear that there was you know, issues with the depictions. Uh, no, to answer your question, I, I didn't see that at all in the film. In fact, Colonel Parker was quite complimentary in his memo to James Aubrey. Parker was actually quite complimentary. He said this, Mr. Dennis Sanders did a tremendous job with great enthusiasm and dedication. We are endeavouring to help put it together on a professional commercial basis. Uh, now, he's obviously very um, cosy with James Aubrey because there's a very uh, nice little personal bit here. Jim, as you know, Elvis, you and I believed in this idea from the start. I tried to sell the idea for the past 10 years, but no one would or could see it. We are all grateful for your belief in it. So this is interesting in that James Aubrey was obviously a key part of putting it all together. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's it's no surprise, really, that uh, Colonel would have gone right to the top to make this yes. happen. So that makes sense to me. He, he likes to rub elbows and to do a bit of battle with people like this. So so here's something that worked out really well. So it would be a, a, an after-the-fact commiserating of, you know, gosh, look at us. Didn't we do great? You know, Elvis was good too, but man, we really put it together. And uh, so that that makes perfect Colonel sense. Yeah, yeah. Yep, you're right. To move on to the reason that we have uh, convened today, we are preparing for our three-part special uh, for the new year on Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. So Gary, I know this event means a great deal to you. Can you perhaps talk us through why this is so important to you or perhaps what it is and why it's so important to you? Well, it does have incredible significance for me. I believe it was 1987, the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death, that our local PBS affiliate here, or just over the border actually in Buffalo, 
ran both the Aloha from Hawaii concert and the 68 comeback special. And I taped them off TV in 87. So the both of them I've, I basically grew up with. But Aloha for me, and I've always said that I believe it to be his last great triumph, the last really significant moment in his career. I mean, I, on one hand, it's easy to say that because it was a major event, period. It was a global satellite special and, and all of the things that we're going to get into. But uh, maybe it was because I was so young, but from an emotional standpoint, uh, and again, as with all Elvis things, everything takes a bit of a different spin when you factor in his the the entirety of his life and career. So, knowing things about Elvis... And then making stops along the timeline, of course, adds to the significance of those stops along the timeline. Aloha from Hawaii, and again, I don't want to get into too much detail because we're going to later, but it was just the grandiosity of the spectacle. And that extended from, you know, hair and clothing to to lights in the in the auditorium. But it mostly for me was the performances have such grandeur to them that for for a, a pre-teenager, it was overwhelming, the performances, uh, the songs, many of which I wasn't really familiar with because they're the, the bigger 70 type, 70s type concert songs. But it was so grand and so huge that it, I was in awe and, and it, was, it was a spectacle over the top in many ways, in many good ways. And it penetrated my being and my soul. And because I was so young, I carried it with me throughout all of my life and my my Elvis studying career, and it has always been a bit of a touchstone because of the enormity of the sight and sound, and a lot of the emotional stops that he takes along the way during the during the concert. So it was to dumb it down. It was heavy. It was heavy for me. Now this is a couple of years on from Elvis. Uh, that's the way it is. So one of the things that we'll be doing in our first episode is tracking Elvis's career, particularly in 1972, leading up to Aloha from Hawaii, because by any estimation, 1972 was a huge year. Um, there seemed to be a new record out about every 20 minutes. There was Elvis on tour, which went on to, to great success. Madison Square Garden, four shows, 80,000 people, a number 11 live album from that. Uh, Burning Love single went to number two on Billboard, number one on Cashbox, a total of 165 shows in 1972, uh, three road tours and two Las Vegas engagements. It must have been about the perfect time uh, for an ambitious project of this nature. Um, so Hawaii obviously was a very convenient location. There was also a good deal of significance in terms of Elvis and the Colonel's relationship with Hawaii. Probably, you know, geographically, satellite-wise, you know, uh, likely it was a good place in the uh, on the Earth to do this from. But I don't know. I feel a bit cynical saying this, but I feel like Hawaii was more than significant in Elvis's life because it was the only tropical place he could go. It was it was part of the U.S. Obviously, Colonel was okay with that. We all can we can get into the weeds about. Colonel's uh, immigration status and whatnot, and you know the silly idea that Elvis, if I can't go there, Elvis can't go there. So I, I always feel happy and glad that he got to go somewhere nice. And you know, if you if you do a search, you see he was, you know, he holidayed there all the time. And so yeah, it made sense that there was a connection between him and the state. Part of it stems from that kind of a sad thing that I think, well, I'll let you go to Hawaii, and that's nice, isn't it? So it was a, it was a nice place for him to escape to. Maybe uh, the relationship grew out of that, or maybe it was initially a good place to work in 61, and connections were made there. And maybe Colonel in the back of his mind thought, well, at least it's a bit of a trip he can take, and at least it's a, not a foreign place, but a, 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 a tropical place that he could go and... And the business side of it was a bonus for Colonel, certainly. So that worked out well on on, on both sides. Uh, and uh, yes, your point about the connections um, is an interesting one. And, and that is going to be something that is going to be quite crucial to, I guess, what became the legend of this event. So just to run through briefly um, a timeline... 
it appears that the Colonel came up with this concept uh, sometime early in 1972, being aware of the increasing use of satellite technology in news events and current affairs, and this sort of led to this light bulb moment. Um, it was first announced or the details of the event were first announced in Las Vegas in September of 1972 at the conclusion of the um, engagement there. Um, KNBC News were there to cover the press conference. It's a long way from Tupelo, Mississippi, and songs like Heartbreak Hotel to posh nightclubs in real hotel settings like this, and even further to the audience of one billion that Colonel Parker predicts will view Presley's worldwide concert next January. Sincere. Presley joined RCA record president Rocco Laganestra to announce the concert, and nearby, as he always is, just out of camera range, Colonel Tom Parker, there, in the hat, real flesh and blood, just like the image he created, Elvis Presley, who talked about the evolution of that image. Now, uh, I would like to think that I am I had improved as an entertainer, uh, and I'd like to get there to fool with an audience. Because it's a give and take thing. If you can, if you can, if you can do that, it works. You know, if the artist or whoever is performing can get that kind of rapport going with the audience. Most of Elvis Presley's early music contemporaries are now merely footnotes in the history of rock and roll, or resurrected in some nostalgic gathering. That's because they didn't have the one thing that Elvis Presley had: Colonel Tom Parker the shrewdest manager in the business. Jim Brown, KNBC News, Las Vegas. Him the shrewdest manager in the business. Do you think that was, if that was ever the case, was it still the case in 1972? Well, Colonel, again, Colonel, but one thing that he was really good at was keeping his boy in the spotlight and steering him towards the places he should go, steering him toward the places that would ensure longevity. All you have to do is look at, gosh, any other of Elvis's contemporaries from the 50s and compare what they were doing. You, you can't compare. And what is the difference? I don't want to digress, but I, I, I'm currently reading about Jerry Lee Lewis and what a nightmare his career was after a, you know, an 18-month period, and what was the difference between him and Elvis? Well, lots maybe, but he didn't have that shrewd guiding force. I think I've gotten over a long time ago my reluctance to give Colonel credit because history is what it is and truth is what it is. So, I guess we got to give him credit for, for conceiving this, for knowing what was out there technology-wise, knowing what was happening at the time. I guess having the vision to see what next step could be taken. Um, in terms of Elvis's popularity at the time, well, it was his own drive, I suppose, that got him back out of the movies and back in the recording studio. Partly it was his own drive that took him back to the stage. And he did build a show in Las Vegas that was contemporary. And he recorded music that was contemporary. So it was a unique confluence of, of many, many things. You know, most of it was Elvis's way with the song and, and his, his finger on the pulse. And to know what to do in, in, in terms of performance and recording. And the Colonel facilitated the, the Vegas stage as a place to do that. And so a lot of things came together and Elvis was, you know, very much on top in the late 60s and in the early 70s, which again, no other of his contemporaries can say. And a lot of that is is down to the colonel, but Elvis was able to, to tweak his persona and, and the songs that he recorded and his stage show to still be contemporary at the time and to warrant such a huge undertaking as, as this. Uh, now, one of the people that we are going to be learning about is Marty Passetta. He was the uh, producer and director. Our admiration for him is going to absolutely go through the roof. The amount of pressure and stress that everybody was under right up until virtually the show. In fact, at the very last minute, there were technical problems. There were issues very easily all could have ended in a 
absolute embarrassing catastrophe and they, they managed to tie it all together with string right at the end and um, of course we know the result was uh, was just you know this, this incredible event but now some of the people um, Gary that we're going to be learning about there are a lot of very very interesting and important people behind the scenes Marty Pacetta who we just mentioned uh, another interesting gentleman Tom Sarnoff uh, now, he was the head of NBC's West Coast Operations, part of uh, one of those incredible 20th century American families. Uh, his father, David Sarnoff, a pioneer of RCA, one of the very early people to recognise uh, radio and then television as mass entertainment, you know, possibly one of the most influential American families in terms of entertainment in the 20th century. Now, another interesting gentleman is Eddie Sherman. It was his initiative and uh, through his uh, lobbying to Colonel Parker, made the beneficiary of the show the Kui Lee Cancer Research Fund at the University of Hawaii, which was obviously a big part of the show. Don Ho, um, a Hawaiian entertainer and someone with whom Marty Pacetta had worked, previously making television shows. The relationship with Marty Pacetta, and uh, you alluded to sort of local contacts before, Don Ho would become absolutely critical behind the scenes just at that very sort of last high-pressure moment when things looked like they were all going to fall apart. Kui Lee, of course, um, Hawaiian singer and songwriter, wrote I'll Remember You. Elvis recorded that in 1966, actually the year of uh, Kui Lee's death, sadly, from cancer. Joan Deary is a pivotal figure. She was at the recording desk at the concert. She uh, was an RCA executive uh, producer and later archivist of Elvis's back catalogue and her involvement in the production of the double album and also in some of the album releases afterwards when Colonel Parker made a, a massive deal involving the back catalogue would become critical in years to come. But my absolute favourite, Gary, and someone that uh, I was really, really fascinated to learn about, uh, Gabe Baltazar Jr. He was a Hawaiian jazz musician, a sax player, uh, had worked at NBC and uh, later at the Royal Hawaiian Band. Now, his significance to Aloha is that he played the flute solo in American Trilogy. And we talk about Marty Pacetta being under pressure. Has there ever been a musician in the history of entertainment under more pressure to get a solo right? I would be skeptical if there was one. Um, you're telling me I'm going all over the world with this solo? Uh, the only thing I like to think, and I, I would say is that, as with, I always think of the boys at uh, American Sound Studios, crack music who had played with the stars. No doubt Gabe had not engaged with anybody with quite the hugeness of Elvis Presley, but and the situation was certainly unique. But I like to think that he was a professional musician who was called upon to, to play a solo because he could do it. He was the man. And I like to think that I always watch his eyes near the end of the solo. Twice he looks up quickly for his cue from Joe Gershio, perhaps. And I'm just thinking, you know what, man? Good for this guy. But you know what? He's a pro. He's in the pocket. They say to him, Gabe, do your solo. He stands up and does it. I bet you if you interview him, it's one of those things where he says, oh gosh, afterwards I'm watching the show and I'm thinking, man, this is a really huge thing. But at the time he has, he's punched in it's a job and he lays it down perfectly and just you know sits down comfortably in history and looks around and says cool but he was a professional so good for him we give him props for sure Looking at his work history, um, he had worked with the NBC Orchestra, had worked on Smothers Brothers and various other variety and entertainment shows. And I'm surmising that he was brought in especially by Marty Pacetta because I don't believe he'd had any previous contact with Joe Gersho or with uh, Elvis. Marty Pacetta did, in fact, bring a hand-picked crew in terms of his uh, technical support. So I'm surmising, based on uh, Gabe Baltazar's um, history, that he was hand-picked by Marty Pacetta specifically for that moment. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Marty obviously was smart and, and knew the guy to bring in. So he hit that one out of the park. 
So um, now we know, Gary, with the benefit of hindsight, the entire project proved to be this enormous artistic and commercial success. But there's always a danger of writing history backwards. The lead up to the broadcast was anything but smooth sailing. As we alluded to, everybody was under intense pressure. There were arguments, standoffs, actually concerns over whether or not Elvis would rise to the challenge. Some potentially catastrophic last minute technical problems, possibly even sabotage. Um, So we're going to be looking at all of this in detail. Uh, We'll talk about the dress rehearsal, the show, the edited NBC television special that was broadcast domestically uh, in April, and also the double live album that went to number one. Also, some of the things that happened afterwards. Is there anything in particular, Gary, that you are looking forward to really coming to grips with? I'm really looking forward to breaking down the show itself Because in terms of the uninitiated asking me, what is it with Elvis? You know, there's a half a dozen things you might point to in his career. You know, I, I often wonder if out of the half dozen, three or four of them are from this from this concert. The performances are, if you had two or three choices, you know, to, to play somebody a performance to prove to them that Elvis could sing, Elvis could perform, Elvis was something a little bit different. You know, there's a handful of performances from this concert that would drive your point home. So I'm looking forward to breaking down the show itself the performances and where they stand in the pantheon of Elvis' world. We're going to be talking about all of this over three episodes, which will be out in January of 2022. But in the meantime, we're, of course, heading towards a very special time of year, and we all have our little Christmas and uh, New Year traditions in terms of movies and, and what to listen to. So now I know we both share an interest in American graffiti, although for different times of the year. For me, it's New Year. For you, it is uh, Labor Day. Now, you've written a great four-part series on your website um, about American graffiti, and we'll link to that in the newsletter, of course. But Gary, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, how it almost didn't get made, then when it did get made, it almost didn't get released? Well, I'm always... I'm often baffled traveling through the vintage leisure world and and looking at things from the past that have proved enormous over the years at how often it was that the powers that be didn't believe in it or, or didn't think it would work. I mean, even after that sort of thing happening in history, these men didn't look back on those times and think, well, maybe this is one of those. Maybe we should green light this. Nobody seemed to learn that sometimes you got to step out of the boat and take a chance. And I guess their job is to run the business end. So maybe we can't expect them to see the artistic and to see a, a director's vision. But at the same time, they're in the business. And that's part of it. Shouldn't they look at that and say, you know what, there would be an audience for this. But Universal, first of all, Lucas couldn't interest anybody in it. Perhaps it's partly my beloved American International Studios fault because they were making films and others were at the time that were hyper-violent, sexual, a lot of crashes and blow-ups and murders. And credit George Lucas where he, he wanted to tell a different story, his own story. And he says himself, you know, they wanted hot rods to hell. They wanted a murder. They wanted, he says, they wanted a film that wasn't American Graffiti. So all the student, all the studios continually said they weren't interested. So he was finally able to interest Universal in it. But again, after the uh, uh, an initial test screening, there were so many issues they had with it. And the Universal guys were all distraught. Oh, what are we going to do with this film? Think about it. The film that you and I know and love, they watched the same basic film and were distraught. It, it baffles the mind that they didn't see what he had there. And I guess you got to leave it up to guys like Lucas to be the visionaries, to see over the horizon and to say, you know what, there would be an audience for this type of film. And, you know, it's funny that with his American Graffiti, he ushered in a whole different type of film and filmmaking. And so it was a real struggle. And his producer friend, Francis Ford Coppola, was there fighting for him. And, you know, eventually, almost reluctantly, almost like, oh, what do we got to lose? Let's just release this stupid thing. And then everybody bought homes in the islands with the money they made from it. It was it was one of those stories where you shake your head at what, you know, the guys couldn't see. And Lucas, in many ways, revolutionized filmmaking. I mean, you can make a case that 
it was that huge. So at the core of all this, you can't do all that without a lovely movie and a, and a wonderful story. And that's something that you and I have connected with and it's resonated with us. So the proof is in the film itself. It's magnificent any time of year. I'll just actually read something that, that you have written. Uh, George Lucas made American Graffiti in 28 days for $775,000. Test audiences loved it. Universal hated it. Producer Coppola was miffed and said he'd buy it back from the studio. But Universal finally released it and it became one of the original sleeper hits. The film initially grossed $55 million. 325 million in today's dollars. In 1978, it was re-released and grossed an additional 63 million, bringing the total to 118 million or 697 million in current dollars. The 43rd highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation and one of the highest cost to profit ratios in movie history. So the Universal executives didn't really distinguish themselves, but there was something uh, interesting too about the, the music rights. Um, that they managed to secure. Um, can you just talk us through that? To say the music is part of American Graffiti is, is, doesn't scratch the surface even. The music is is interwoven into, into every aspect that you can enjoy about American Graffiti. Somehow it relates to the music. Historically, now everybody's a music supervisor, a, a film job I covet, choosing the music to appear in a film. Well, the director, Lucas, did that himself. So at the time, though, their Easy Rider did do a similar thing on a smaller scale previous to this. But beyond that, it just wasn't done. Music departments at studios were vibrant. They provided music, incidental music, and that was what you did. There was a budget for that. And you scored the film. You had somebody score the film. But Lucas's story was different, and it called for obviously something different, and it was Let's get all these songs. Now, what is it? I think it's 43 songs used in the film. When they got down to securing the rights to use these songs, again, it wasn't a thing. Think about it. Early 70s, so it was, it was still only you know, 10, 10, 12, 15 years removed from when these songs were new. A lot of these poor guys were still out there playing the, the bars and the county fairs trying to make a dollar. The business was different. Somebody said to Lucas when they were busy securing the rights, you know what, for a few dollars more, we could buy the rights as opposed to leasing them or renting them, however the business is done. They're just sitting there being not used. The publishing rights holders would love the chance to make some money to, to sell these, fil these songs outright to us. But I mean, Universal, we just finished talking about how they were sad about spending the money they did. You know, a, a dollar or two more was never going to happen. So Universal wouldn't agree to them buying the rights to all these songs, which, as we know, thanks in part to Wolfman Jack and his packaging all these songs into albums, the compilation album became something gargantuan in the business. And you needed the songs to fill these, so to having, having owned these would be incredibly lucrative. They, they weren't able to buy the rights, but they, they did lease them or whatever they do, and, and the film is, I was going to say the film is better for it, but I mean, he wouldn't have made it. it. I don't think I can think of another time in history where the music is so inextricably linked with the story and not just the action, but what's happening in people's hearts and minds is linked to this music. So the music is a huge part of American Graffiti. And it's funny to think that Universal, you know, wouldn't shell out because that became a huge thing in the years that were to come. You know, licensing music was a, is a huge business today. So it's a fascinating part of that movie story for sure. And the, yeah, the music is certainly, I mean, it's its own character in the film um, collectively, isn't it? Yes, and yes. Uh, it's interesting, just we were talking about budget. Um, I remember in one of the cast interviews, I think it was Ron Howard that was saying, you know, the budget was so tight, you know, it wouldn't even extend at one point for chairs for actors to sit between scenes. And they sort of had to go to sort of uh, George Lucas or, or Coppola and sort of say, look, you know, <laughs> please be reasonable. We need somewhere to sit. Surely, you know, surely that is not an unreasonable demand. You know, talk, talk about a, a a way to drive home the budget. Ron Howard is great in that interview. I understand the lean and mean style, but could we just have a chair? <laughs> and and the funny the way he was responded to, well, no, like we can't have a chair. There's a curb over there. You sit on the curb. And they said they would sit in the back of the cars that were used and stuff. So they just sat anywhere, lean and mean. Yes, for sure. It was a good. It was a good time in in Hollywood. Just about Ron Howard, just very quickly. I mean, he is a living example of 
if you are going to be unbelievably influential and powerful, you can still be that and be a nice guy. You know, you don't have to be, a, you know, horrible. How true. I mean, what is the secret? Eh? He's tapped into something where he's just chill. Like, this is just what I do. And perhaps you get more things done by just being chill and working yes. with people instead of butting heads against them. So, definite points for Ron Howard. Yeah, he's a good guy. And, and to show up, I can't recommend enough the making of documentary that often will accompany the film if you buy it, American Graffiti. Uh, everybody is on yeah. hand to be interviewed, which says a lot about their feelings about the experience. And for Ron Howard, who was a player at the time, to be sitting there and talking so fondly, it's just one of the wonderful aspects of that film, for sure. I mean, there's so many uh, wonderful little moments. Um, I think it just kicks off very in, in great style when poor Toad crashes the scooter into the side of the the diner, which obviously was not planned, but left in. Um, and I, I also, love, I know we've talked about this, but I also love sort of the dynamic between Mackenzie Phillips Carroll and Paula Matt's John Milner, because that, I mean, if, if they didn't do that right, that could have just, that sort of relationship and that dynamic, it so easily could have just been a little bit disturbing, but they just did it with such great humor and when Mackenzie Phillips gets hit in the face with a water balloon and just that whole spontaneous reaction. Yeah, for sure. I was surprised. Well, I don't know why I was surprised, but I often come away from the film and I'm thinking, is that not the best part? I mean, you're right. They they somehow were able to nail, maybe it was the inexperience of the two actors and they were just sort of riffing together and acting together. And I think when John drops her off at the end of the film, I, I used to be kind of almost surprised. Oh, I, I never really thought that, you know, she was into John. She thought he was exciting and sexy and wanted to kind of date him. I didn't really get that, which is interesting because it shows you how well, like you say, th they achieved that dynamic of just having an adventure, being out and about, and Carol wanting the prestige of, of her association with John, you know, more so than wanting John himself. So, you th that's how well they played it. You didn't think it was seedy or creepy. It was just, it was, you know what it was? It was just totally charming. The two of them learned from each other, John especially, uh, it's just a wonderful part of that film for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, in 1979, six years after the original, they made more American Graffiti, written and directed by Bill L. Norton. Now, that uh, charted the lives of the principal characters um, through the latter part of the 60s when things were not quite so innocent for many reasons, uh, with the exception of Richard Dreyfuss, um, Kurt. Now, it was interesting when I, I went back to look at your series of articles in preparation for our podcast, and I actually read the comment that, that I wrote about more American Graffiti. And having seen it again since, I, I think I've, I've changed my mind on on the sequel a little bit and the last time I watched it I, I actually enjoyed it a lot more and I thought the Vietnam scenes in particular were very well done and um, one thing I did want to ask you we see in Vietnam Bo Hopkins uh, Joe from the Pharaohs uh, has that relationship with um, Charles Martin Smith uh, Terry Fields, Toad, uh, working in the uh, helicopters in Vietnam. Now, of course, that relationship, that unlikely friendship, uh, was Bo Hopkins and Richard Dreyfus in the first film. So, was do you think that part, or do you know if that part with Toad in the helicopter was that originally conceived for Richard Dreyfus, who chose not to be part of it? I gotta wonder. I don't know. I mean, I think I might have said this about Ron Howard first, but. I, I, I haven't looked this up specifically, but I, I got a doubt that Richard Dreyfuss was ever going to be in this movie. I mean, this, the filmmakers, I would assume, would have wanted him, obviously. Again, not having it with me at the time, but I think he had won his Oscar by this point. And so, Richard Dreyfuss, and a little bit of a sidebar, the only guy that comes off as a bit of a wanker in, in that making of documentary is Richard Dreyfus, So, I'm not surprised he was not going to lower himself to play that character again. So, therefore, a guy of, of Charles Martin Smith's stature, uh, whatever it was at the time, I don't think it was, it was very huge, I could see it perfectly being a showcase for him. Uh, connecting him with uh, Pharaoh Joe was more of, a, I think, a screenwriter Hollywood sort of device because we just happened to be from the same town and the same movie. I, they made that work okay. But 
I, I can't see Dreyfus having been involved. Was it built specifically for Charlie Martin Smith to play Toad? Perhaps not, but the filmmakers must have known, even budget-wise, Dreyfus, it's not really going to happen, so let's make it work. You know, it was Fields that was, he was going to be involved in it anyways, because it, it was part of his epilogue of what happened to him during the war. So, so Dreyfus, even Kurt's character... I, I just can't see it having been conceived for him at all, no. Another thing that I thought worked quite well was how Ron Howard and uh, Cindy Williams, um, Stephen Laurie, how they sort of unwittingly became uh, campus protest heroes. And I thought that was actually quite well done too. So how do you see, uh, in the in the overall scheme of things, how do you see the sequel? Uh, by the way, it was budgeted at $3 million and was perhaps a little bit more successful than it was given credit for. Uh, it was in general released for 126 weeks, according to Box Office Mojo, and grossed $15 million. So it certainly wasn't a failure. Well, I give it a pass. I think a lot of sequels, you have to. I mean, to sit with pen and paper and compare the sequel to the original is folly. And I'm talking more about sequels from back in the day, not the series of films they make nowadays with you know franchises in mind. I mean, it's... They're, they're, they're made a bit differently nowadays. But back in the day, it was that was successful. Perhaps we could tell the later story of these characters. So what you get from more American graffiti is, is more of the characters you've loved. I mean, you can conceive in your mind what you think would have happened to them. And that's fine. And that's fun. Even, you know, the things we're not shown are always fun because we do our own things with them. I enjoy it. I enjoy this film and a lot of sequels that give me more of the characters that I've loved. I mean, often I will say, well, dang, that, that's, that wasn't very good or I didn't really enjoy that. But you got more of what you wanted. So that's the good part. So more American Graffiti, I enjoy it. Perhaps because it amplified Lucas's uh, method of telling different stories and and linking them well they weren't they they were barely linked in more american graffiti but of course the characters are all related to each other uh maybe you had the four different stories and you were able to invest in each individual segment and characters and and when they cut to this next story you were like okay i want to see what they're up to now so there was enough in it to make it a a pretty a pretty good film on its own as a companion it's 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 even better because it's nice to have a companion to a movie that you've loved. Um, they didn't totally destroy what Lucas ha had done. I'm thinking of Eddie and the Cruisers 2. The first film is one of my 25 top films. The second one was a, a farce, so it's got a stink on it. But More American Graffiti is is a is a great movie, and it's it's a fun companion. And they they did the music well again. Wolfman Jack was on hand. I can see that they thought you know Paul Lamatt and Candy Clark were going to be stars. Let's give them a showpiece. It's funny how out of the whole cast, they're the only two that never really sparked, but they were given that showcase and, uh, you know, they did all, they did all, all right. I enjoy Paula Matt in the film. It's poignant. It can't help but be poignant because you know from the end of American Graffiti what's going to happen to a lot of these characters and having the built-in knowledge of the changing times, you know it's going to be bittersweet and, and not just thrilling. It is fun to watch it, to watch it play out. The different methods they used to shoot the different segments was kind of intriguing it was ambitious and i, I give it points i enjoy it it's it's, it's a pretty good movie and uh, i'd uh, just strongly rececommend everybody to go to soulrideblog.com and have a look at your four-part series on american graffiti because it's a great series of articles and also check out the review that you wrote on wolfman jack's biography uh, which also got some very nice feedback from the uh co-writer and friend of the Wolfman himself. So that was great to see as well. So lots of great stuff on Soul Ride blog there about American Graffiti and Wolfman Jack and Elvis and lots of other stuff too. So Gary, as we head towards uh, this very special time of year, what is on the vintage leisure viewing and listening schedule for Christmas and New Year? You'll be sorry you asked me this question <laughs> because the... <laughs> I remember, a, uh, I remember a friend of mine said back in the day, the day I decorate my home, that day it begins. And my friend said, boy, you really go all Christmas media, don't you? Because everything I read is Christmas, never mind the watching, the listening. And I'll tell you why. There's so many wonderful things to listen to and to watch that I want to experience them all in the, in the, in the six weeks my home is, is decorated or whatever, that season. It, it all started with the film Diner 
my second favorite movie of all time. It takes place in the last week of December, 1959. And I said, as I grew up, I began to watch it only in December because I wanted to connect with the boys in Baltimore at that time. And then when I lived on my own, I said, well, I'm going to decorate December 1st with Diner and it's going to be all, all December Christmas music, watching everything. When I had a family and our stuff grew, the stuff you collect, Christmas decorations, it's crazy. And with little kids, you have to do it a bit differently because they want more of it. We decided that we, you know, we need a week or so to get it all out. So then it became more into the middle of, of November because we couldn't just turn a switch and it was Christmas in our house. So it took us a week. So now it's about a six-week thing. But the viewing, because in the past, it was less of a thing, less of a, a sticky wicket to celebrate Christmas in a TV special or an album or a movie or whatever. So everybody did it because of the maybe pre- the way they were raised and they, they grew up. Christmas was a thing. And most people were able to connect with it. So I guess you could be cynical and say it made money sense to make a Christmas record as it's easy to see that it, it is. It does make money. But I always like to think that these performers, they had families too. They had, they had growing up years and they wanted to add their thing to the Christmas canon, their movie, their special, whatever. So there's so many wonderful, heartfelt, genuine things out there to listen to and to, to watch. So in our house, you know, it's funny too. There's a, an article coming about Elvis Presley's Christmas music. The releases out there... There's got to be, I don't know if it's thousands, but look it up. It's 20 Christmas songs the man recorded in his life. So it's definitely those. And it's Bing Crosby, again, listening. The man is sincere about it. And he, he presents wonderful family sort of things that celebrate the holidays. Uh, lately, it's been Andy Williams and Perry Como music. Uh, the film White Christmas is huge in here. There's a, uh, there's a lot of Peanuts, Charlie Brown Snoopy specials. And a lot of this comes from having children. You want to introduce them to a lot of things. But now later in life, when they're older and gone, you think, well, it's over. But I still have a connection to these things. So I have many movies that, are, that even take place during the holidays because there's a Christmas scene or a New Year's scene. I keep it to viewing in December films like When Harry Met Sally, for example. So I have a lot of a lot of fun Christmas viewing and it goes all Christmas media. I have a wonderful book I read every year, Christmas with Ed Sullivan. It's a collection of stories from his um, uh, Hollywood friends that have submitted about their memories. And it's also Christmas stories from the past that he chose to put in the book. I have a great review of it on my website. It's excellent. And uh, uh, Dickens, A Christmas Carol, I read every year. It's a wonderful book. It goes pretty big in my life and my family. I, I've even tried to wean out the CDs that I own. You know, it's great to have some stuff to listen to on MP3, but the hard copy stuff I can't always get through it all during the season. So it's just wall to wall because there's a feeling. It's an emotional time with with history, nostalgia. Uh, There's a contented feeling that can come with it. And all of these things for me go with it and accentuate that. So I don't want to miss any of it. So it, it, it goes full on wall to wall near the end of November. I got lots of stuff, let me tell you. Wonderful to catch up once again. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast this year. All the very best for Christmas and New Year to you and to your family. And we will look forward to reconvening early next year for our deep dive into Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. It's been great fun, George. I appreciate you having me and thanks again and all the best to you and yours. Please stick around after the credits we have a little bit more on Colonel Parker's communications with James Aubrey, the corporate head of MGM, about Elvis, that's the way it is. Our reference is Peter Goralnik's biography, Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley. And we also touch briefly on Peter Goralnik's take on Elvis, that's the way it is, and on Dennis Sanders, the director, as well. And we also digress briefly to The Last Waltz, Martin Scorsese's uh, concert documentary of the band. Now, the companion newsletter to this episode has some additional information and links. Also, 
a link to the complete KNBC News report from Las Vegas announcing the details of the Aloha special. Thank you to everyone who supported the podcast this year. You can get in touch with us on Facebook or at the Deck 4 webpage. And uh, however you spend your Christmas, holidays and New Year, we wish you the very, very best. And we hope you'll be back with us in January for our three-part series on Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. Our policy for the fair use of copyrighted material for commentary and critique can be found at the Deck 4 webpage. Thank you to Steve Collins for technical support. Thank you to Gainesville for our original theme and incidental music. By the way, they're getting some great reviews for their live shows around Germany at the moment. And thank you for listening. Original music by Gainesville. Keeping the spirit of Tom Petty alive in Europe and playing great classic rock and roll. Check them out at gainesville-band.de and link to their socials. The Deck 4 podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com. If you love travel, now more than ever, it's important to listen to the experts. The Armstrong and Burton book series, Dark Secrets Haunt Powerful Families in 1980s Britain, available from Amazon and book retailers everywhere. Find out more, link to the Deck 4 web and Facebook pages and subscribe to the Deck 4 newsletter, all at georgefairbrother.com. Okay, here we go. The anticlimax of a director's ending tacked on to follow the climax of Elvis's stage show. The frequent cut-ins on Elvis's performance with great disadvantage to getting across seeing Elvis as he really is performing. But obviously something that he did succeed in getting removed was some some disparaging references to Blue Hawaii and GI Blues. Um, I believe the slurs on Blue Hawaii and GI Blues should be completely removed as these were two of the most successful films ever made by Elvis. They did not deserve to be mentioned uh, just as trash in such a way. All interview footage uh, ought to be thoroughly checked so that it doesn't become monotonous and take away from the performance as these are Garanik's words, uh, the smarmy dismissal of Las Vegas itself for the kind of conspicuous consumption that could only alienate Elvis's true fans. There's no reason to show an abundance of stakes in a truck in this picture when perhaps in Dalton, Georgia, where the picture may be showing, a family saved up money to see the picture and relinquished their hamburger for that night so they could see Elvis. So how do you see how the Colonel was sort of thinking about the film or framing his objections? I alluded to it earlier. It's hard maybe to criticize the Colonel in his business dealings The man had an eye to a buck for sure. Interesting that you note that Colonel doesn't want you to talk ill of Blue Hawaii and GI Blues. Because they were big money makers, Colonel says you shouldn't talk bad about them. But perhaps what was happening was somebody was making a a comparison. Look at the family-friendly, safe, easy, singing-to-babies type character he was in these early films. Now we have him here in Las Vegas, and he's dynamic, and, and, and that's a legitimate point. That's a point I think we all have tried to make in the past. So, but it's Colonel who, now don't disparage those films because they made money. Never, it would never occur to him, well, he wasn't depicted as cool as he could have been in those films or whatever. It's funny, those two films are two of my favorites, but... I can understand from a critical standpoint you wanting to make a comparison. Interesting that he talks about the steaks and the poor couple who can't have a hamburger that night. That is so Colonel, so Carnival Barker who knows, you know, how people spend their money and the entertainment they want. And But at the same time, I would think the Las Vegas people would want to show Las Vegas in all its opulence to help to drive tourism. Perhaps Colonel has got a foot in reality and says, you can do that all you want. People are not going to be able to afford a trip to Las Vegas. But then the back and forth is, well, shouldn't we depict every moment of an experience in Las Vegas? Because this is all the people are going to get. The same with the performances on stage. You could argue, put the camera on a tripod, aim it at Elvis and let him go. This is a wonderful film document. To cut in with interviews, yeah, it's always one of the things that rankled me about that film that I love, that's the way it is. The people interviewed in the middle of a performance, plus it's not like they're so compelling 
and you know they add so much and did you hear the way James Burton hit that riff like they're not adding much to it they're talking about their own lives or whatever they're talking about things that I frankly I can't remember at all but I remember Elvis singing you've lost that love and feeling so interesting complaints that make sense but don't and you can go back and forth forever but you know leave it to Colonel to pick out all those things and to want to fight for I mean not the art part but you know the buck and how this film should be presented it's not surprising to hear any of that and like I say you could debate back and forth for days on those things yeah exactly um, Peter Goralnik's take on the film itself is quite interesting viewed today it remains in many ways a reflection of its time with, with split sp- green gimmickry, a jumble of action images, and the muddled approach, not sure if this is entirely fair, but, and the muddled approach to rock and roll that one might expect of a serious filmmaker down on his luck. Yeah, I know. I, I've, I've struggled with this. I, I, I don't under... It, I guess it's so hard to analyze something with our current brains. Looking back, it's hard to analyze. Garolnik is the guy that can do it. But, you know, I don't know. For years, all I've seen is great, amazing rehearsal footage, great concert footage, good behind-the-scenes stuff. To me, it's a wonderful document. It done the, the only way he knew how to do it at the time. Actually, New Year. Uh, I tend to put on the last waltz, which uh, I actually discovered quite late. Um, it was actually on cable TV one New Year's Eve, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I suppose, and um, just happened to watch it. And I didn't really know too much about the band or the background. And I saw that absolutely blown away. I mean, it's, as we know, everyone knows it's just a wonderful film and captures a, an incredible moment in time. But the thing that struck me, I sort of looked at that and thought, isn't this great? All these guys there, there's no ego, there's no conflict, everybody's together. The joy of making music, it's absolutely wonderful. And then, of course, you go and read about all the uh, stuff behind the scenes that Bob Dylan was quite difficult about, his contribution and sort of, you know, Neil Diamond's ego and uh, the fact that there was a huge amount of resentment with Martin Scorsese because of the perceived um, or the perception that he was favouring Robbie Robertson and, you know, stuff about royalties, everything afterwards. And, and, you know, like you, I like to sort of learn and read lots about stuff. But after that, I thought, I really wish I hadn't (laughs) read that. I wish I just sort of kept the the magic of it. But um, I think um, one of the performances there I'd just like to mention, which I, I think is possibly one of the greatest rock performances ever captured is the Staples Singers uh, with the band doing the weight. I think that is just an incredible moment uh, with Mavis Staples and when Pop Staples does his little verse there, you know, this voice that is just smooth as silk and I, I think that really, which wasn't actually part of the concert by the way, that was one of the uh, filmed inserts that was done afterwards, but I just think that sort of uh, collaboration with the band and with the Staples Singers is just one of the most incredible pieces of music on screen. I'm not surprised. I'm not as familiar with the film as you are, but I'm familiar with the Staples singers. I mean, you stand up some barn doors on the stage and they can sing with them. I mean, they're they're possessed of a collaborative thing as well. Talk about no egos. The Staples singers wanted to make music and and make a joyful noise and, and they did. So they are magnificent. And a film like that on New Year's Eve, I can see it because it's an event. And I always say, I got some movies I don't watch just any old time. They're event movies. And I can see that The Last Waltz, I can understand that. That'd be a good, big, fun event movie to watch on New Year's Eve. So don't blame me for that one. That's a good one. 